God obviously thinks history is important because so much of the Bible is history. And our society tends to reject the study of history, and our, our schools have been structured so that we have social studies instead of history. But since God thinks history is important, how should we go about teaching our children history? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Seitz. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. So we know from Judges 2.10 where it says, When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. The whole nation falls away, and it's one of the reasons it's assigned to it is that they didn't know what he had done. So... So God clearly thinks we need to know what he's done in the past. So how do we go about to make sure that our children know what God has done in the past? And I think, you know, this this question is coming, comes up a lot in the circles we run in, homeschool circles, but it's not, it's not just a homeschool problem. I mean, you look at uh, the school curriculum history has been a lot less emphasized, and even with, with those probably watered-down standards, you know, students are, are failing history you know I with uh, the national standard of here's what eighth graders should know a couple of years ago only 15 percent of eighth graders met the standard to say they were proficient in U.S. history so it's, it's a problem that um, the the world has not not figured out how to do so it's one where where we need to do better than that and I mean I just when I was growing up there was a distinct shift there was a shift away from teaching history to teaching social sciences or social studies. And the shift was very much based on the idea that there's no pattern to history, that it's all just random things that happen. And yeah, you should know these things happened, but there was a real deconstruction of the fact that there was a pattern. And so it makes sense to me that people don't know history because the schools even, you know, when I was in school in the 70s, they weren't teaching history. They had moved from history to social studies, which was a very different thing. And, yeah, you still taught the same historical things, but they didn't say that there was a pattern to history. They weren't saying this is what God did. They were just saying, well, this happened here and this happened here, and there was no tying it together. And if there's no tying it together, in a lot of ways, history isn't that useful to know. And it's one thing where you, you have the 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 – People say history is boring because what they heard in school was just memorize these lists of events and people and dates. And you know now secular educators are realizing that's not working, but what they're often replacing it with is um, something that is also a very agenda-driven intersectionality saying, well, how does this, how this event impact the black people and the, you know, the homosexual people and the, the women? And so it's, it's something that it is still not not solving the problem. Hey, and I'm just putting my cards on the table. I am perfectly comfortable with the teaching of history being agenda-driven. I just want to make sure that the agenda I'm driving is, let's talk about what God's done in the world and, and sure. not bandy that about. But realize that's very much in conflict with the way that history is taught by public educators right now. And what you're saying, in a sense, is history is always taught with an agenda. You, you can't escape an agenda. Everything's it. taught with an right. agenda. And so, yeah, it's it, since you can't escape it, you better have the right so one. So let's just start there and get that one out of the way. I mean, it's an interesting thing when you were talking about the his, where history started to decline. I was kind of tying it to in my mind. I wonder how much the impact of dispensationalism and the embracing of the dispensationalism in the church kind of had the impact on the teaching of history. Because dispensationalism, there's an aspect of it where it – 
it breaks these different, it breaks the things that God was doing that were very deliberate and that were very moving, and it just breaks them up into these isolated things and these pieces that really don't have a connection with each other. And so I wonder how much of that within the church really actually had an impact on the culture. I mean, it was just, it was very much that there should be no impact on the culture, that that every culture is equal, every culture is this has the same value has i mean this is what the i mean and this was even during the cold war and i remember studying you know russia during the cold war and they were talking about how wonderful it was but then they would also say america was wonderful and they'd say the american indians the the um, indigenous people as they say now that that they were wonderful their culture well they didn't even look at the negative aspects of the culture they were just trying to exalt and say culture doesn't matter that all cultures were good right. and so they shifted from that god is driving the world someplace to it doesn't matter because everything's equal and i think it's really important when when you know as parents first of all as christians that we understand that and secondly that we make sure that our children understand that god is actually doing something the world's not just like floundering around and there is no pattern to it that we find out things about the nature of god based on what he did which is what you know that's what judges 210 says and as christians when we look at how we should teach history core to that is understanding um, why history is important and what, what types of history are important. And we've already started to get into that uh, by saying that the Bible itself, you know, you look at it one way, the Bible is all history. It's recording events, you know, other than arguably a little bit um, of prophecy for the future, uh, but it's either all history um, or if you want to look at it uh, in a more strict definition of history, a lot of it is specifically recording events that took place. That when it was written, it was history. And so that, that should clue us in that remembering the past is pretty important. It's really interesting because if you have your children do a Bible reading plan or if you do a Bible reading plan, there are, there are plans that basically have you read a piece of this verse and a piece of this verse and a, or a piece of this book and then this book and this book. And those things actually cause you not to see the pattern of Scripture. I mean, there. You know, I, I mean, I would say if you're going to read the Bible at a minimum, just do it in order. Start in Genesis and read your way through Revelation. I think it's also useful. You can find the 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 Hebrew ordering of Scripture and that read the books in that order because there's kind of a there's a chronological aspect to how they're laid out and that things are laid together. But if you you can read the Bible in a way that even causes you not to see the patterns in Scripture. And it's really interesting how there are certain things that kind of war against that. And so it's, it's just important, even at a base level, to think about how you're approaching Scripture so that you actually do see what God is doing across it. Right, because we can, and it's the same thing that makes Scripture, or excuse me, makes the teaching of history so boring, is, you know, it's just all these facts and dates and stuff without the flow of how things went from one to another. And we can do the same thing in Scripture where you read, some, you read a story and you go, okay, so what should I take away from that story instead of seeing it as a pattern of God's revelation, that God right. revealed things in a certain way. He had people do things in a certain way to teach us what, what he did, what his response was, what we're supposed to do. And if we start to just take isolated, we end up being just like how they teach history so frequently in school. It's, it's just this happened on this date without any context and without any meaning, and that's what's on the test is you need to make sure that you remember that which everybody's going to forget six months later because what relevance does it have but if you say well this flowed from this because these things happened before then you start to see how mankind works you start to see how god works you start to see how the world works god has a plan that he is following 
and that what you see in Scripture is his progressive revealing of that plan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when God, when, when Jesus comes on the earth and dies and rises again, it's something that was planned by God from the foundations of the world. And he tells us that. So, I mean, it, there are surprising and shocking things about it, but it fits within the overall architecture of what God's doing. And that's how you have to look at history is saying, not only is God doing something, but there's a purpose, there's a direction, there's a thrust to it that all of the parts are fitting into. Right. And you have some pretty um, direct commandments that say that these things are important. You have verses like Joshua 4, 21 through 24. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over, that all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so you have this commandment to, to teach your children the things that it's talking about, that they, they were to put up these stones to, in, to you know, inspire their children to ask, and so that they would have the opportunity to explain what God has done. And I mean, you don't, you don't find commands in Scripture saying, make sure your children know math. You don't find commands in scripture saying, make sure children know science explicitly, but you find commands saying, make sure your children know what God did in the past. When they went up to the Passover feast, I mean, the children were supposed to say, why are we doing this? Why are we going up there? So that the father would recount exactly the reason that God passed them over and they brought them out. The angel of death passed them over and God brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the promised land. And so the so much structure of their society and structure of their feasts and everything was about making sure that that the next generation knew the history right during the passover feast there's questions why on this night do we do this why do we i mean it's there and so even in the things that sort of were potentially created by by the jews themselves they brought into their culture this idea of children are to ask their parents questions and parents are to answer these questions and they're to tell them about these things i mean that they're those are fundamental aspects of their society. And so it's that's a good thing for us to try to copy is teaching our children to ask us questions. And it was part of their societal identity. We were the people that God brought out of Egypt. You know, and, and so that was important. That informed who they were. That gave them a national identity. Right. And it was based on this history. And so that's why it was so important. You've got to keep repeating these things so that you know who you are and you know who I am. And I think when you when you look at what they were supposed to be um, telling their children, um, they they were supposed to be relaying these events from their past. Uh, and, and I think it should give us inform us as to what we should be teaching our children. You know, the types of things that we should be teaching. Because you know, there's the verse that says, you know, if, if Jesus, if all the things that Jesus did, I suppose the world would not contain the books that should be written. You widen that out to every person who's ever lived. There, you, there's a lot. Of, no one's going to know all the history, and you definitely don't have time to teach your children all the history. So, what part of history is important? And and I think it's kind of you know, comes down to a few different things. I mean, the, the primary is what has God done in the past um, through his people on earth. So that starts in Genesis, um, Genesis 1, all the way through the story of Israel, all the way then to the story of the church, the founding of the church, and then church history. And it goes back to God knows the end from the beginning. And so when you look at things, and, and this is part of the reason, you know, you, 
Charles, you mentioned dispensationalism earlier. Part of the basis of dispensationalism is a rejection of the study of history. Because the reality is is that dispensationalism says that since Christ came, everything's been getting worse and worse, which is just so ahistorical. It's just not what happened at all. And so when you think about the, the importance of teaching what happened in the church, it's you see the advancement of the gospel, right? I mean, I go to Nigeria. There, the gospel hadn't been preached in Nigeria until 200 years ago. And so it's not like the gospel isn't still advancing. It's not like it's still not transforming societies. It is just because we're in America where we go, well, it used to be the church used to be healthier 200 years ago. Whether that's true or not, it doesn't mean that's true for the whole world. And the, the, the gospel has been advancing that whole time. And so, so studying church history sees the fulfillment of the promises of God. And when you don't do that, you end up thinking that they haven't been fulfilled or that we just don't understand them because we must – Christ not, must not be on the throne. Right. Even though it says that he ascended, he must not be on the throne. All authority must not have been given to him because otherwise the world would look different because it's getting worse and worse. Well, to take that position requires you to have not studied what happens what happened in the church over the last 2,000 years. And in the world. I mean, there's there's a book called Dominion written by an atheist named Tom Holland, not the guy who played Spider-Man. And he has – he in his book, he says as a child, he loved two things. He loved dinosaurs and he loved like the ancient Greek and Roman empires. And he says he got to become – as he got older and he went to school, he studied – he studied Rome and, and Greek and the Greek empires extensively, and he found out that everything he thought that he loved about them were all fake. They didn't what he thought was that they existed. They didn't exist in that way at all. He said they were much crueler and horrible than he ever could have imagined. And so he writes this book, Dominion, and the fundamental principle of Dominion is that the world was changed so drastically by Jesus Christ and by by the coming of Christianity that we can't even imagine what it was like before he came. He said that whatever your idea of it is, however however you imagine it in your world, if you tried to imagine, he said, you cannot imagine the barbarism, the cruelty, the horribleness of it. He said the world was changed so drastically. And yet, like you're talking about, it's very easy. There are a lot of people, I grew up this way thinking about it, that the world has gotten worse since Christ came. And it is in direct defiance with Everything you could study in history to the point that this atheist is going, he's not saying, I now believe in Jesus Christ. He's saying it's an incontrovertible fact that Christianity changed the world and for the better. And so if if we're expanding the impact of Christianity beyond the church itself, an important thing to study is, is how it affected your country, how it affected your state, how it affected, you know, your, your city. You know, if if you don't understand the history of your country, you, you don't understand how God is working there. And that and that doesn't just mean the Christian history of the country or the history of the church in your country, because like like we've been saying, it's it's broader than that. Right. And it's important when we look at, you know, church history or the history in the Old Testament, say, where so much of it is about the judgment of God and the wrath of God being poured out. And God says he gave that to us for an example, right? I mean, it's not that we go, oh, he was like that in the Old Testament, but now he's the God that doesn't care. That's not the way the Bible teaches. So when we even think of the, the culture of our own country, we should be saying, what is causing us not to prosper? What is causing us to feel the judgment hand of God? And we need to know what has happened 
the ways we've rejected God, the ways that we have tried to obey God, because these things say where the attacks are going to be in our society and where we should be fighting back because they inform us. So it's not just studying it for the sake of knowing it. It's also studying it to understand where we are in historical context so that we can respond to that historical context. As we go through this, when we talk about some of the ways to teach history, if you're like me, and I know a lot of you are, what you're really hoping we would give you is a is a definitive list of books that you should a read curriculum. and give your children. I mean, I I, I mean, and I do think there. I will try to put a few book recommendations on under there, but they're going to be pretty sparse. I mean, there may be here's this book, and this is this is good for these things, but there is this part of it where fundamentally one of the problems with history is is you can't solve it by just saying here's a definitive set of books. Like Joshua was saying. You can't study all of history. You can't study everything. There's this idea in the back of your head is I want my children to have an exhaustive knowledge of history. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's hard to have, have an exhaustive. You're going to memorize a list of facts and then forget them all. Right. I mean, or you know, or you're just going to, or maybe you are a genius of history and you can sit down and teach your children that. But if you are, you're probably not watching this podcast. I know what I want. I would want this podcast to come out and just be neat and tidy. It's going to be the thing you don't want. It's going to tell you is the reason why you're scared of history is because history is difficult. But what we are also trying to tell you is it is approachable and it matters less exactly which part of history you study sometimes as long as, like Joshua said, if you know about some aspect of history, you can read about this aspect of history, you can find a good book here that you start telling your children so that they understand that God does work in the world because your children are going to learn things that are different than what you learn, but they need to have the right way of thinking about it all the way through. Can we, can we do that at the end? I mean, just kind of tease our audience, keep them with us. Could we give a few of our, hey, here's some good history books. Like I said, and we'll try to drop some into the comment section. Just just mention some, not in the comment section, but in the description of the, of the video. Oh, no, no, no. We'll put them in the video itself so you have to watch the end. That's Jonathan's suggestion. <laughs> Let's do it. Good As we look at it, and it's, it's kind of that dual thing, we should understand what the river's doing, but we should also understand what that little stream off on the side that is our life, how it got there, why it's there, because that also informs us what we're supposed to do. And we shouldn't think what we're supposed to do is not affected by history because it is affected by history. The church we go to is affected by history. Our family's affected right. by history. And so God has written a story for us, even as he's writing the broader story, right. he does both at the same time. Yes. And that should really affect what we do. And a lot of times I think we can just pretend like the child came into this family and the family doesn't have any impact. That family has huge impact. And, and, you know, this is, this is the whole systemic racism and stuff is that they're saying it's, it is the only impact. And I'm not saying it's the only impact, but we shouldn't deny that the history of where we came from, the, the things as a family that we did, this has a huge impact on, on every child in that family. And it has the community that they're in. And when you look at like state curriculums, they almost always require studying your local state and sometimes even your local community. And that's because they recognize that it has real connections. How did we get where we are if you want to take them further? You have to know that. And it's very easy in homeschooling not to do that. I don't know that we did a very good job of that. Yeah, and that's one reason why you, we're, you, we can't give you a definitive list of books. Because if you're in Alaska, you should probably know about the Alaska Gold Rush and spend more time on that and less time on the Civil War than if you're in North Carolina. Because the Civil War had a 
much bigger impact on North Carolina than it did on Alaska. And still has a big impact on North right. Carolina. Yes, yes, still. Yeah, because it, it, it has an impact today. Now, take it even more personal. I mean, one of the things that you look at in Scripture, not only do you see a lot of history, you see a lot of genealogies, um, which those have various meanings, and, and part of it is pointing to Christ. But you even see genealogies of nations that, that aren't in the line of Christ, a lot of them. And, and so you look at that, and I think one of the things you should take from that is the, the history of your own family should be in, important as well. Um, and not just, you know, seeing how many names you can get on the page, but, but saying, where, where, where did my family come from? What, what things um, can we even learn from surviving relatives? Can we talk to, you know, can your kids talk to their grandparents or their great-grandparents and say, uh, what, 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 what are your life experiences? Because often they're very different than the life experiences today. And that, you know, that can, that can teach us things. And one, one part of history, too, is... Um, you know, you're living in a, in a time, in a culture that, uh, is, it, that gives you certain uh, no, ideas, um, certain values that you just adopt by being part of, you know, America in 2022. But if you talk to someone from 60 years ago, you can start to get, to break through that, even within living memory. And one of the ways that our culture, because, you know, our culture is swinging so rapidly, it's changing in enormous ways. And a lot of the ways that it's changing so rapidly is because people haven't even learned their own family history, right? The Bible talks about that basically a grandson is supposed to teach his, or a grandfather is supposed to teach his grandson. And then that grandson is supposed to teach his grandson. So you have a like a five generation span that creates this continuity in the culture that acts as a natural buffer in the culture. But if what you can do is convince a, a son when he graduates from high school that he shouldn't listen to his parents anymore, you can then change the society however you want because there's no continuity. There's no connection to two generations before. In in. You know, you read some of the stuff that the educators are doing, and they're doing this very deliberately. And Christians have to do the opposite. They have to say, "You're." It's not all about you. It's about a continuum. It's about where God was, you know, sixty years ago, and where He'll be sixty years from now. And because they've created that that break, they're able to shift the society and the culture in huge ways. And we need to recognize that we need to make sure that we understand our own history because that's how we can get continuity when our grandfather says, you know, this was good and this was a blessing. If you cut off from that knowledge, then you can be persuaded of all things that this won't hurt you, that it'll be okay. Just ignore it. Where your grandfather could say, well, no, these things happened before. Do you realize what the culture was like 60 years ago? Right. I mean, it is shocking. I mean, like we were just looking at, I forget who it was. I think it was uh Art Linkletter or something like that. It was a guy who was a TV, you know, he hosted Kids Say the Darndest Things and a lot of other stuff. I want to say he was born in the early 1900s and he died in the early 2000s. And we were just, when we just heard about it, we were just sitting there going, can you imagine being born in 1915 or so and dying in the early 2000s? And the thing, you know, like he was right under 100 years when he died, 97, I want to say. The light of 100 years had passed through his eyes and he had seen huge changes in culture, huge changes in society. And there's this part of it where, I mean, you just, you kind of want to almost, you want to sit down with somebody who's done that and go, what are some of the things that really stand out to you? What are some of the things that they get obscured by history books? Because there's no way to bring them down to the personal level, whereas he can go, well, 
I remember this, I remember this, I remember this, and can tie this thread together for you that you couldn't even you couldn't even dream of. You couldn't even really find anywhere. In the technology, people want to just say it's a blessing. And a good question to ask is, what did we lose? What did we lose by having cars? What did we lose by, right? right? Because you look at what's happened over, I mean, there's been huge, huge technolo- technology changes over the last, you know, 80 years, just huge. I mean, one thing as we talk about this too, is that the way history books are frequently written is they want to make man out to be so wonderful. You know, this person did this, and this person did this, and this president was wonderful for this. And and what when you look at biblical history, there's not that much of that. <laughs> A lot of it much more is they failed this way, they failed this way, they failed this way. Like Psalm 78, that's what the whole psalm's about. You know, verses 5 through 8 say, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Right, I mean, and then Psalm 78 just lists example after example after example after example. And too often we can we can think that what history should be is this, look at how great man is. Instead of being, God gave real blessings, like to Israel. He gave them the law to say, this is how, this is good. This is what, if you do this, you will be... Pr- prosperous, you'll stay on the land, you'll be happy, you'll be filled with joy, just do what I say. And the history that's supposed to be taught is they didn't do it, and this is what resulted in it. And so we need to make sure when we teach history that we don't just teach the parts that make us go, yeah, 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 rah, rah. You know, David killed Goliath, not David slept with Bathsheba, as opposed to God says both. And we need to make sure that we don't just twist it to make man the hero of the story, which is usually how it's taught in schools. People often ask, how do I talk to my children about sin? How do I talk to them about difficult things? And one of the things is, it's like you're talking about scripture. If you read scripture to your children, you read the history of scripture, or you deal with just history in general, you come across, you have to deal with a lot of difficult things. And you, there's a part of it where this is the way to expose your children to what God has done in the world and the nature of man is by using history, by using the word of God, because it doesn't hide them. It doesn't hide these things from them. And it, and it shows the good and the bad. And it's, there's a part of it where it, you know, it's as opposed to going and saying, I'm going to talk to you about evil, which is not the right thing to do with our children. It, but it does give you a point where you can actually have these discussions about things and your children will ask hard questions to answer. <laughs> I mean, your children will ask you things that, you, you know, sometimes you'll go, I don't think we're ready to talk about that. And there's other times where they really want to know and you have to kind of give them a basic explanation. And they start to learn the nature of the world and they start to learn the way the world works because you're actually showing them the world, not some fake version of it. And, and that world is designed that even though there's plenty of evil in the world, God means it for good, right? right. I mean, it's like it's like it says about, you know, Joseph's brother selling him into slavery. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so if you read that story, you see the evil there. But in the end, there are real blessings that come out of it. And it you both at the same time don't deny the evil that men do. 
but also explain, but God has a plan for that evil. That evil is not outside of God's plan, and you should expect men to do evil. But at the same time, you shouldn't think that somehow this is outside of God's will or outside of his control. No, he controls them so that they do evil because he's going to cause good to come from that evil. And sometimes it can be 2,000 years later. I'm not saying that you look at it and you say, oh, yeah, it's, it's nice and neat and clean like it is with, with Joseph and his brothers because that was, that was early in Revelation, right? I mean, that's in Genesis. So God makes a lot more difficult things as they go. But the, that same concept is throughout God's history. But just realize that when you're teaching your children, it depends on where they are, their capacity to understand those complexities. Like, you know, when you have small children, they've developed categories of right, wrong, good, bad, and they want to know, where does this person fit? Was Samson a good guy? Well, that's a hard question. And then, you know, you realize as you're telling the story that you're going to be telling the story differently, or, or I guess telling a story is the wrong way to, to talk about that. But when you're when you're expounding scripture and expositing scripture to your children, trying to get these narr- narrative parts of the Bible into them, that you're going to be telling them things differently. Like when you're telling them the story of Samson, and they're very small, you may not be incredibly detailed in exactly who Delilah was and what her profession entails. Right. But by the time you're dealing with a 15-year-old son, that's a very different kind of story. It's going to hit different. There's going to be aspects of that that are important to him that aren't important to your five-year-old daughter. To not, not to contradict you, but one thing that's important through that is to maintain truth. Um, because the, the idea isn't that when the child is five, you only tell them the good things about Samson, and then later you tell them the bad things. They actually, right. you know, so many things he did were wrong. Because um, that's something that happens that's all the time in kids' books, is they only tell you the great things that the person did, and they ignore all the bad things that the person did. And that's pretty damaging because then later, you know, they, they have this thought in their head that this guy was so great, and then they say, wait a second. I've been lied to. This guy did some pretty bad stuff. I remember 15 years ago, you and I were having a conversation about discussion you were having with your children, and they asked you, like, what a harlot was. And you told them a harlot is a woman who take, who someone pays money to pretend like she's married to them. And I remember there was this part of it where I was thinking, you know, at the time going, there's this temptation to think that telling your children more detail about evil would be good for them. But the reality is, is that's a good description. And a five-year-old, however they think about it, that's they're okay. And as they get older, the more that they understand, they're still okay. You know, I mean, everything you tell, like you said, it's true, and it's the truth, and it's the it's the gateway through which they can understand it. It gives them a way to understand it, and and it doesn't harm them. And, and, and I mean, the reason why you tell them these things as they're growing up, like you said, the five, the reason why the three-year-old and the four-year-old want to know categories is because they want to put themselves into one. They want to be a good guy. And the reason why you explain to them that, Solomon, that Samson is more complicated is because they need to understand they're not a good guy. And if you, let, if you give them the illusion of a good they're they're born a slave to sin. And they serve sin. And there's a part of it where if you let them believe that they're a good guy, that Samson's a good guy, you're creating a false category for them as they go. And so, like you said, you don't have to introduce them to the total complexity, but you have to introduce them to the idea of not letting them, because three-year-olds suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And you have to remember that. 
So a, a kind of a, a humorous story rela- along these lines is, you know, my my five year old son a few months ago, you know, came to me and was like, Dad, you know, d- did you know George Washington was a bad man? I'm like, why is he a bad man? He's like, well, he let women in his army. I was like, okay, where'd you hear this? And so he had pulled a book off a shelf and had r- read something about there being a woman in his army. And so it kind of led to an interesting conversation. Like, well, George Washington didn't know that there were women in his army. He would have kicked them out of his army. But, you know, the people writing that book, they want you to think that George Washington probably, you know, let people, let women in his army. And they, they even though that's something that very rarely happened is that women wanted to be like men. They want to equate women to men. And so they, that's what they talk about in, in some books. And, and right. so it's, it, but it's the thing where they immediately, what category are you in? Are you a good person or a bad person? Right. And, you, and one woman slips in your army and you're a bad person. <laughs> and part of the, the goal of education is to help the child complicate their categories as mm-hmm. they have the capacity to take on those complexities. What you want to do is structure truth, keep it true, but structure truth at the point where it connects to things that they already have because the point is to edify them. It's to, to grow them and to mature them and to give them a better knowledge base. But you can't – but you never succeed in doing that by switching to lying. All you do is then confuse it as opposed to if you if you dumb it down, if you will, or simplify it, which is a better term, so that they can understand it, can connect to things, and you're actually building them up. And the goal is to build them up. I mean, and if you want to talk about this from what I think maybe a little bit of a nerdy educational aspect, I think about, like, when you talk about language, one of the things that pushes children to understand language is they get frustration with an inability to express themselves. There's a point where a child's really young and everybody's giving them everything they need and they're really not frustrated. And then they get to a point where they want specific things. And so there's a fr- they want to communicate. And so they start learning enough words to communicate. And then they're kind of okay for, again, a little while because they're, they're getting what they need. And then they start to understand there's more complex things. And so they look for more words. And this happens over our whole life. There's points where you want to talk about something. You've, you've been talking to someone. You go, there's this, and you're trying to describe it, and you're frustrated by your inability to describe it. And, you start, and in technology, it happens where you, start, you kind of start making up words to satisfy your inability to describe it. History is another component to this because in the end, history is a description of the world. And so when you simplify the description of the world, when you oversimplify it, you end up putting a person in a place where they don't, you're not encouraging them to have to deal with the complexity of the world. When you do give them that complexity, you're pushing them and encouraging them to have to deal with the reality of things. And, you're, and, and it's causing there to be this frustration of going, how can I make sense of this world. And Jesus Christ is the thing that makes sense of the world. Christianity is the thing that makes sense of the world. And so a simplification of the world actually pushes a child away from actual Christianity. This is why so many children fall away when they get older is because they've been taught these overly simple things and then they see the world and they can't explain it. And so when you hide the complexity of the world from them, you're setting them up to, at some point, they're going to look for an answer to the world. And if you've told them, I don't have one, you're, you're forcing them to all of a sudden deal with that frustration at one point and look for something to answer it as opposed to developing a means and kind of a vocabulary for dealing with that complexity. And we've kind of wandered our way into some <laughs> <laughs> so, some more practical um, things of when you're actually looking to teach your children, when you're looking what books am I going to give them or what curriculum or what video am I going to use to teach them history. You know, an important thing here is is it what's called a hagiography, 
where it is just trying to exalt the person, the subject of the book, um, and not tell you anything bad about it. So at a, does the book say anything bad about the person it's writing about? Now with like a, you know, a book for young kids, that's harder, but there are books that do that, that you know, give both sides um, in, in a simple way. But, but especially as you get as, you know, for older children, if it's a book that is not really dealing with any problems that this person had, and every person had problems. And if it doesn't mention any of those, that's a big red flag. And, I mean, it's important to recognize that every single person that is writing a book has an agenda. And the person who's writing a book, that they're just talking about the good things that somebody does, even if they say they're a Christian, even if they say they're writing it from a Christian perspective, in the end, they are exalting man, and they're not exalting God. Because they're writing a description of somebody who, in the end, doesn't really need God. And that's a really big problem even for young children because that's not who people are. That's not who their parents are. And so we need to recognize that everybody writes with an agenda. And when we look at the book, we need to say, what's the agenda? Is the agenda truth? That's what the agenda is supposed to be. Is this truth? And it can be done at multiple different levels, but it can also be truth, not be truth when it's all the facts are true, but they're discarding things that are significant, that are equally significant. And a lot of times, because of people's biases, they do this. And so we always need to check and make sure that we recognize what the bias is of the person that's writing the book. I mean, it, it also depends on how comprehensive you're intending something to be or, or you're presenting something as. You know, for example, I can think of cases where I've given a talk on some particular historical figure or other for our Reformation Day celebrations where – you know, they'll talk about five things he did, and in the middle of that, there was something that you you know was pretty big that he did that they did that they just gloss over, they totally skip, and it actually sometimes they they skip it even though it ties to other things that he did that are pretty significant. You know, and so it is like you said, it's at the level of detail, it's at the level of what you're trying to say, but there are you know. You have to do work to find out whether people are skipping these things or not. You have to put in energy. And you do have to, at a certain point, trust certain people. Like, we're going to make some book recommendations, like you said, at the end. And there's a part of it where we're not infallible. But there are points where, you know, you're going to find somebody who says, hey, this guy's pretty good and he writes pretty well. We all have to do that. We've all you, – you can't know everything. When we think about – about books and other things and about authors it's not it's important that it's not that we're just saying this is a good author for my child to read but we need to teach our children to recognize that they will have biases that they'll have biases that the author will have biases that these are things that they need to fight against because you know and we've talked about this with the news i mean one of the major ways that that the news media distorts what's happening in the world is by the stories that they choose to cover and in books in history books people can do this they're choosing what to cover and choosing not what not to cover and sometimes they do it because they want to exalt the person but other times they do it because they want to exalt the country. Sometimes they want to do it because because they want to exalt a certain ideology, right? And so, or to tear someone down. Or to tear do someone, right, to do coverage. it. They can do negative, too. So we just need to make sure that we recognize that when you read that book and that history book, you need to be teaching your children to be discerning about it, not just to say, you know, hey, this is I've read this book, so this is now true. Right, yeah, I mean, that's an, it's an important point to say that 
the book is not the Bible. It's not completely accurate. Um, you know, maybe for, for a children's book, that's different. But when, when you get older children to recognize, you know, we're reading this book and it's the author's perspective and interpretation of what happened and what parts of it are fact, what parts of it are their interpretation, and being able to distinguish between the two is pretty important. As well as tell your children that there are going to be certain people in history that really resonate with them. You know what I mean? There are certain people that you're just, you're really going to like this person and you're going to want to overlook that. You know what I mean? You're, mm-hmm. it's, it's just really easy to have personal heroes and it's, you know, it's just a byproduct of sort of studying history. And so just make sure that when you're talking about their biases, it's not just the author that's ha- it's like you said, you'll have them yourself, but it'll even be personal. It'll be really personal things. And, I th- and one way to kind of break through the bias is to um, get out get out of modern culture by reading books books that are older. Um, you know, because they're, they're not from the same mindset that modern America is. But you also have an issue because when you have an older book, it means that instead of having them having the worldview of modern America, they have the worldview of America from the turn of the century. And, and so... With their own set of biases. Right, exactly. And so I think a lot of people say, well, it's an old book, so it must be good. Well, it, it might help show things that are wrong with modern things. But if you just adopt that worldview wholesale, you're going to have certain problems. You might find, wake up and own slaves accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other conversation. But, but, you have, but you have, you know, there's books, you know, books that are probably good to read in a lot of ways. But if you don't recognize... Um, the ideology that was um, the, the ideologies in a lot of books that were just so pro-America, we're such a Christian country, everything is great. You end up overlooking problems that America had, um, ways that America was not following God um, by just reading into this the books that have bought into this narrative that America is you know God's chosen people and we're lighting the way of freedom for everyone. And you can you can read books that are falling off the horse the other way that say. America's been bad ever since the beginning and not recognize any of the blessings that God gave to America or any of the people that wanted to honor God in what they were doing. So. And I think one thing that can be helpful for that is, you know, for, for older children um, or for yourself is to read books from both sides. Read an old book about a person, read a new book about a person. Because new books also have the advantage that sometimes there are new discoveries. And so if you're getting into the details of something, the old book might just be wrong and inaccurate on certain details. But read an old one, read a new one, compare them. See see, see which one, where they differ, where, which, which way do you fall? You know, there's a book on Paul Revere's ride that at the end of it, it talks about how Paul Revere was looked at like every 20 years since his ride. And he's looked at substantially different at different times, right? Twenty years after his ride, nobody knew who he was. I mean, right. but then his name rhymed well, so <laughs> all of a sudden he becomes famous. And so, you know, certain things like that, we just need to recognize that it's it's useful to have the broader history too, because when somebody wrote a book, they are writing from a certain perspective, and that perspective, right? When you're when you're you know, when the country's going, we need to be the rugged individualists, and then you write about Paul Revere, it sounds a lot different than it does when you're talking about, you know, going to World War One, where Paul Revere was the American hero, because, of course, he's leading America, and he's we're all banding together. And so how he gets written about is very different, even though they're taking the same facts, and write about it so that 
he's portrayed in very different ways. And so even knowing the context in which they were writing can really affect, you know, and again, we're talking about for older children, not for younger children, but it can really affect how they were portrayed in these figures that you think they're always portrayed the same way. Not at all. They can have vast swings of how they were portrayed, where they went from a villain to a hero to a nobody to, you know, to somebody that just cared about themselves to somebody who was trying to save the country. I mean, the same person over time, the historians frequently don't feel so much uh, an attachment to the truth. They feel an attachment to their agenda more than attachment to the truth. It's really important for Christians to, to desire the truth. Because the truth is what causes you to understand what God's doing. And so when you read things, don't be afraid to find out that George Washington, you know, whatever it is. Thomas Jefferson had, you know, half or had had children with a slave, very likely. I mean, there's there's things like that that people don't want to talk about that, you know, are, are also realities. Right. And you can have people that that take that and I can think of one in particular that wants to distort it and twist truth and all kinds of things to go, well, no, this is who he really was. He was a good Christian. He wasn't a good Christian. He hated God. It was obvious. I mean, one of the things that's tied to that about knowing truth as well as doing investigations of authors and even teaching your children about this is occasionally take an author, look up a footnote or a reference where they talk about something in the book and look up the footnote and reference that they cite and have your kid read what they referenced and see if they're actually being fair with their usage of the material. And I mean, and we've had numbers of times with, you know, with the kids where we had them read what someone else, we had them read the original reference and then read what they actually ended up summarizing it as and going, that's not what it says at all. Or that wasn't the point of what, you know, the person said something and sure they touched on this subject, but it had nothing to do with what it was represented as over here. And so it's both, you're dealing with people and this is what people are. And, and it keeps them from having this idea of it, part of history and having their own view of it is you idolize people. And part of the point of idolizing people is there's a point where your idols fall. And when the idols fall, it causes damage and destruction. And so there's this part of where a lot of people go through life just setting up this idol, letting them fall, going to another idol, idolizing this person, letting them fall. But if you teach them that the only person you can actually, you can actually count on to not sin is Jesus Christ, it's God, it changes your, it, it insulates you from the sin of other people and it protects you in a way so that you're you're not as harmed by the realities of the world the things that are actually ugly and harmful and truth is good truth is always good ignorance is not a benefit it's not right. a benefit in any circumstance i mean that's not how you you grow that's not how you're able to do things more wisely ignorance is ignorance <laughs> And we should desire truth and not worry about it. And I th- and not one, worry about where truth falls. And I, th- and I think one, there's some tools there because it can be hard, you know, especially if you have a child who is reading a lot of books a lot more than you have time to read. Like, how do you even figure out what books to give them? You know, mm-hmm. um, from the super list at the end of the podcast. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> Stay tuned. How fast of a reader? <laughs> the they super might not mega last very book long. list. But I think there's certain there's certain uh, there's certain ways that you there's certain shortcuts to try to figure out is this book you know legitimate at all and and one would be you know is the author lying to you you know like obviously right right or not so obviously but can you see where the author is lying to you because you know there's certain books that you read and you know depending on how familiar you are with what they're basing it on but you start to realize 
what they're telling me here are things that they have no way of knowing whether they happened, like long extended back and forth conversations between two historical figures. Who was writing this down? <laughs> right, right. You know, and now so there are conversations recorded. There are people wrote things down, but. It, you know, especially, and then another thing is just the book using footnotes. I mean, there's great history books that don't have footnotes. But if it has footnotes, you can start to see, is this, is this a book that is taking the research seriously? Because, you know, writing a book that's, you know, anything other than a, a, an advanced book um, that is, is a difficult thing and to be accurate. And, and if they have the footnotes to show their scholarship where you can go and check it like you're talking about, that, that's the point in their favor. And who they're footnoting, too, because, you know, I was listening to a book on, on um, McCarthy, and basically he was – the, the author even said in NBC News in like eight years ago or five years ago, something like that, said how Senator McCarthy was the chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee. He's a senator. He wasn't on the House Un-American Activities Committee. But they're footnoting people that say that he was the chairman of the, and they have footnotes. And this has been reported for 50 years. And anybody listening to it goes, the thanks goes, he's a senator. He wasn't the chairman of a House committee. But yet this is widely reported. It's in lots of history books how he's the, the chairman of the House Un-American Activities Committee. No, he wasn't. Right. But yet... And so when you look at the footnotes, if somebody's footnoting somebody that wrote something five years ago about something that happened 80 years ago, you should start to go, are they just repeating things because there are common narratives that get repeated over and over and over again that are blatantly false? And, and this is a comment that probably will apply to no one who is listening to this podcast. But, you know, there are even children's books that have foot that have sources and have footnotes in them it's not hard to do if you're writing kids books put footnotes in put sources in and because one of the reasons why footnotes are important is because it testifies that you're not making stuff up even if the people don't check it having that footnote there is saying i'm not making this up here if you want to check it go check it you know for example i can think of lots of of books that we'll check out from the library that are telling, usually it's like a biography of some inventor of something, and they tell a really simplified story because they're writing for a, like a five-year-old audience. But then you get to that last page, and it's all dense text clearly intended for adults. Hey, here's who this person was and, and what they did and why they're significant. So, you know, it's, it's adding, okay, I was telling it in this context for this kind of an audience, but I realize there's more to it than just what I put there. That's really useful to know. That gives me some confidence that this other stuff that they were giving wasn't just glossing over the things. If you're looking for a real shortcut, sometimes you can read the dust jacket and you can tell that the person is saying that this person had a more pivotal role in history than Jesus Christ. And you kind of go, you know what? I think they're exaggerating a little bit here. I mean, in dust jackets always have to take a little, but I mean, but there are times where you can just tell from the summary this is a skewed view of this person's role in history. I mean, so there, I mean, there are. It's amazing how many books you can weed out <laughs> just by reading, you know, the simple summary of the book. And I think one thing that that has to be mentioned here is uh, historical fiction, um, which you know that's something that a lot of homeschoolers use a lot. Um, but I'm not convinced that it's that helpful um, because if you're looking for the truth. Um, why not read the truth? Um, now, it is easier to write a book that will engage kids' attention if you 
have license to make up whatever you want. But if you, but it can be done. You can write books about complicated topics that are not making stuff up, are not even making, because there's even books that are not supposed to be fictional, but they make up quotes. You don't have to do that. It's harder, um, but you can write very interesting books for kids without doing that. And so I would just be very, you know, wary um, of, of going in that direction um, and saying you're studying history when you're studying what someone is making up about history. Because there's enough problems with people who are writing real history making things up. To say you're studying history from a book where you give the person a license to make up whatever you want. And now it is possible to say, well, you know, yes, these characters are fictional and these ones are real. But the real characters interact with the fictional characters and the real characters say things in the book that that person may not have said. And so it ends up being hard to distinguish the lines there. Yeah, as, as somebody that read a lot of historical fiction to somebody else at this table. <laughs> I enjoyed all those times. <laughs> How did you guess I was talking about you? I mean, one thing that I found out afterwards is that all of a sudden you go back and think about events and you think this is what happened there and it's not what happened there. That was an event that was added in to make the story flow and what you can't distinguish anymore is what was true and what was false. You might know the the gross events, right? The major things that happen and go, okay, it's in line with that. But then the details is how you go from one thing to another. It's how, how history flows is through some of those details. And when you start to add different details, it really rewrites history. It really rewrites what God's doing. And even if you knew all the, def- the details, which were fictional and which were true, a big part of it is inventing dialogue. And in the, in the dialogue, you're putting in the person's motivations, their reasoning, things that often don't make it to the historical record, or if they do aren't phrased in the way that a modern person does it. Because when, if you write dialogue for, your, for the, you know, this historical character in your his, historical fiction, you know, you're going to put in what your idea is of why you would have done things. And now, even if you realize that this event, this event, this event didn't happen, you're still going to think that that's the way William Wallace thought because that's what the books, how the book said he thought. And I'll tell you, I can at least tell you this as a person who grew up reading just a lot of general fiction. There's a part of it where... It can be dangerous at one level because it's like candy. Actual history is a lot drier than historical fiction. And there's a part of it where when you get used to the engaging nature of it, the faster pace of it, it's a lot harder to switch to actual history. And so there's just this part of it where you need to be thinking about that in context. I still find it difficult to really engage in a lot of historical texts because I like fiction and fiction's fun and fiction's quick and fiction's enjoyable and there's a lot more things on the page that I enjoy as opposed to actually digging into something that that's dry and technical. And so you do have that impact on your children over time and you really need to think about it. So as far as history being dry and technical, I mean, just to be fair, it really depends on who you're reading. It does. It does. Um, there's, there's some people out there who know, hey, I am telling a story and I'm going to tell it in a very engaging way. And they do it and they succeed at it without yes. lying, without minimizing, you know, and they are a joy to read when you can find them. And, hey, I think listening to books is is a good way to do it, too, because there is effort that's taken to actually read that listening to books, you can you don't have to make that same effort. You can put the effort into understanding the language and understanding what's going on rather than the effort of reading. And that can also engage children into to listening to history books that are more complicated than they could read. And, and, and speaking of developing appetites, I mean, it's going to be really hard to teach 
uh, all your kids to love history if you don't love history. If you don't, if it's going to be hard to know uh, what history books our kids should be reading if you never read history books. And you know, yeah, you you just don't have the same discernment. You don't have any joy in it that you can communicate to others. So, you know. You look at the Old Testament, the commands to teach your children history. Well, you have to know it. It doesn't mean the Bible wasn't talking about give your child a book to say, I don't know this, but you should. It's saying you tell them things. Now, I think it's great to give your kids books, but if you don't know, you're not going to be able to to, to really teach it to them. And I, and I would do a parallel with theology because I think there's a real parallel there, which I would even argue that Judges 2.10 makes the parallel. In theology, what you do is as you read things, you build up a structure of your understanding of who God is. And then as you read more things in Scripture, read the same Scriptures over and over again, that theology keeps getting refined and that structure keeps getting more detailed and you see how more pieces fit together. It's important to do the same thing in history is to, to build that structure where you're putting multiple pieces into that structure so that you can understand what God was doing and not just have a piece here and a piece there. You actually have to, and for you to be able to say, this is where this book fits into history, you need to have built out some kind of structure in your own understanding of the history of the world so you can say, here's how it fits into the other things going on. Because that's the only way that history starts to build in a structure that you can look at and say, yeah, this is what God did. If it's all just data points without any connection, it's God knowing the end from the beginning. It's him driving it to a specific place. So all those connections are really important. So so part of loving history and desiring and giving that love to your children needs to be, I want to know what actually happened in the world. And at first, it's just a very gross thing, right? You know, you have the Babylonians, and then you have the Medes and Persians, and then you have the Greeks, and then you have the Romans, and then, right, and then you have the Byzantine Empire, and you can go on and just have a really rough one. But part of developing a love for history that you can pass on to your children is to actually want to have that structure so you can say, this is what God's been doing for the last 4,000 years. One of the really general principles of education is, and, and if you're a homeschooler, you've got some advantages, that if your children are interested in something that you see has got anything worthwhile to it, you can feed that thing as much as possible, and you get the most payback on that. For example, right now, one of my children is very interested in firearms, so he's reading lots of books about firearms. And germane to our conversation, one of the happy side benefits of that is when you read a lot of books about firearms, you start to learn a lot of history of warfare. You know, now he doesn't, in a sense, he doesn't know that's what's happening, but that's what's happening. I mean, this happened to me when I was a kid. I was really interested in coin collecting, and most of what I remember from the history that I learned as a a kid and a teenager was the history that I taught myself trying to look up coins that I had collected or wanted to collect. And, you know, do that same thing with your kids. If they have a particular interest in some subject, some person, you know, you can feed that and, and just your goal as a parent in that position is just kind of to make sure that they have enough resources to feed their appetite there and then an opportunity to digest it with you. And hey, another way to that controls some of those appetites is you can choose places that you go, right? Because if you go to a place, the child is a lot more likely to be interested in what happened there. And so then 
then you could build off of that. But by even visiting someplace that, you know, is associated with the Civil War, is associated with the American Revolution, is associated with all kinds of other things, right? It doesn't need to just be wars. But from that, a lot of times you can use that as a spark to create interest, either before the fact or after the fact. And from that, right, it, it takes work to get them involved, but, but we can control our children's interest to some extent. And this is like you said, North Carolina is affected by the Civil War more than other places and still is. You can get, there's a lot of, in North Carolina, there's a lot of Civil War areas where battles were held. And so there are places you can go where you can stand on the same hill that this person, you know, that these guys had to charge up and you can tell, you know, and so when you tell, you know, you can have your kids get at the bottom and have them come up while you throw pine cones at them. You know what I mean? And, and I mean, in that like you said, it puts them in this place. Whereas if you're in another place, I mean, if you're in Alaska, you can- There's all kinds places. of gold rush places right. in Alaska. I mean, right. And so, I mean, in the end, I mean, it's, it, like you said, it starts to be specific to where you live that gives you some real advantages and that ties it to things you can do. But in letting them go to those places, it puts them in, it puts them in a different mindset. And it helps build, you know, the, the connection and, and to, to understand the, the story of it, you know, because there are, it's not just, you know, it should, if you're doing it as a list of dates and places and events, then you're, you're doing it, you're doing it wrong. And it's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be boring. I mean, you need to see the, the, the story of it, you know, what's God's doing down to, you know, what was, what did it look like to be in a colonial house? You know, what were people doing? What did it smell like? And so when you have that, you know, <laughs> delicious all the time, right. but, you know, but when you have that, the connection to, you know, experience of I've been to this place, I've seen this artifact, I've seen this reenactment, then it, when you, when you go back and, and read the history, it puts it in a different perspective. It gives you a lot more connection to, to understand what was going on. And another thing that happens there is, you know, you go to most of these national parks and or or other facilities, right? Any historical thing. Usually you walk out with a certain level of detail. But the reality is that most of them, there's people there that you are also showing them that there's a lot more depth that you could study in that particular place. Because almost every place you go there's people who the reason that they're there is they have a real passion for that and they have a real desire. And so you're showing your children that, yes, that it's important to know the flow of things, but it can also be really valuable for somebody to spend time studying particular things because the details do matter. They do affect things. And so that's kind of how you build out that history is that you see show them both the general flow, but you also show the the zeal for detail and the desire for detail that certain people have and that's how you build expertise that's how you can go well hey i know this person i you know i talked to this person at this 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 park and they really knew the subject and they're saying this was a good book well that's probably a good book or even even the books that they have in the the bookstore at the parks or whatever i mean they are you know a lot of times they have agendas everybody has agendas and those agendas might be evil agendas but a lot of times they have things that are there because there's historians that have really studied the details and are going, this is good representation of it. Right. Yeah, I think it's you know good not to be scared of, of, of secular history um, because if you're only going to read uh, explicitly Christian history, then you're going to be pretty limited if you want to go deep at all. Or find um, quality. Right. Or, yeah, quality. Yeah. I mean, you're, yeah, you're going to 
yeah, you often don't get the cream of the crop. And, and often, you know, when you're reading the secular historians, they, they, they let you know what their agenda is. And it's pretty easy to say, wait a second, does this match the Bible? Does this match, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, bad-mouthing the Puritan. But wait a second, what they're saying about them doesn't sound that bad. And a lot of times that, you know, when you look at the secular historians, and this is a really sad truth, though, is that a lot of them are better checked by other people than the Christian, quote unquote, historians. Right. You go to a lot of the books that are at homeschool conventions and stuff, and a lot of them aren't necessarily that accurate. But you write you look at somebody that's writing for a secular audience they're much more likely to have somebody that's that guy who's really zealous about that one detail and he wouldn't examine that and he'll go this is wrong this is wrong how dare they say this and in a lot of times that doesn't happen that you don't have that that check on quality and really that's a shame to the christian community because we should have a much greater desire to have that check on quality. And part of what's going on, and, and this is the same reason why you want to read old books when you can, is when you read old books, they, like we said earlier, they have biases, but pretty much guaranteed their biases are going to be different than your biases. Their shortcomings are different than your shortcomings. So you can kind of see through those in the way that a, a contemporary author you may not. But it's the same thing with reading a secular author. If you're if you're just reading mm-hmm. authors who are coming from your little Christian corner of the world, then you're going to be sharing all the same biases with them, and you're not necessarily going to see when they're less careful with the details, when they might be lying about something intentionally or otherwise. But if you read a secular author who's got, say, a political agenda that you don't happen to share, you can read, you can see through that agenda, but still grab facts that are useful and, and right. understand the narrative. And we have to be careful not to protect our children too much either, because it's really easy to to forget and think that we're supposed to be the protectors, but we're actually supposed to train them so that they can protect themselves. And so, you know, saying, well, I'm not going to have them read this because it might have this worldview in it instead of, you know, reading it with them or listening to it with them and say, this, do you understand why this person said this thing so that they start to develop discernment? Because it's really important. And I think, you know, the Christian community is really bad at being able to discern what's what's true and what's false, what's what's quality and what's bad quality. Instead, it's kind of like it says Christian on the cover, it must be good, and that, no, that's not true. And so we need to be developing a generation that that is better than just saying all accepted because it says Christian on it and not just say, well, you know, the secular, they can't know anything. Sure they can. They could have studied. They could have spent a lot more time on it. They could know a lot more detail about it. Right. And even though they have an agenda – as you said, a lot of times that agenda isn't that subtle, especially if you've been trained to try to think, why is the author saying this? Well, one thing that modern secular historians almost always don't do, um, at least at a, at a particular level, is you know really make any application of the history. I mean, that's very, very out of fashion these days. Um, they'll talk a lot about about how history has impact on our lives, and you know we should learn a lot of lessons from history. But then they never really tell you what those lessons are, um, which which is a, a mistake. You know, when you're going through this with your children, the point of history is not to know a bunch of facts. It's not even while there's a lot of interesting stories, it's not just to entertain yourself with a bunch of stories. It's about actual application to your day-to-day life, to your understanding of the world, to your understanding of God. And that, that needs to be important in it. 
um, prioritized in it because that that's where you're getting the meaning is because if you can show them that it's practical that you you read this and you have examples from the past that apply to the present well now there's you know it, it, has, it has it has a use it has a value and this is something that is you know directly in, in the bible that says this you know in first corinthians paul talks about uh the the, some of the story of Israel and, and the judgments against them and their rebellion against God. And then, and then he says this in, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so we have that biblical history as examples and as admonitions. We also have, you know, non-biblical history, stuff that wasn't recorded in Scripture, but still happened. And it is real examples to us, examples where people did, did well, examples where people did bad, examples of the types of challenges that, that we and our children have to face in our future. And, and fundamentally, it's examples of how God's acted in the world. And in the Bible, we have all of the interpretations of that. We've got to do the work for that for any history outside of the Bible. But God tells us, hey, here's who I am. Here's how I operate. Here's how I look on the acts of men. And here's what I've done about it. And let me give you a bunch of examples. And then you can take all of that and then apply it to all of the extra biblical facts and events that you're coming across. And you can see, you know what? It's the same God. We're serving the same God. He hasn't changed. He still acts the same way. And then, you know, to your point, so where am I? What kind of a story am I in right now? What kind of a story is America in right now? Has God ever done anything to any people who are in the situations that we are in right now that could tell me what might come next in the story? What the range of options are for what might come next? Because it's going to be complex. You may not know for sure. But you've at least got an idea of, hey, we serve a God who's consistent, who has patterns, who tells us he's consistent and has patterns. And like, you know, I read before the verse from, you know, about why the Canaanites were thrown out of the land. Well, we should be going, we see what's happening in our country. God throws people with them. If a man uses a man like he's supposed to use a woman, they got thrown out of the country or out of the land. We should be able to go. We see this is embraced in our country. We should have an expectation of what will happen next, which doesn't mean that we just go and sit back and say, well, this is what's going to happen. Instead, what that means is, you know, you should be the watchman on the gate who says, I see the destruction coming. I see what God has done to other nations for doing this. I see what God has done to nations that don't do anything about the shedding of innocent blood. And we've killed 65 million babies. That's a lot of blood. We should not be going, America is a Christian nation. God bless America. Instead, we should say, don't you see the destruction that's coming? Because this is what God has always done in the past. Don't you see the destruction that's coming? Because destruction's coming on this country because God judges for this. Now, it might be 200 years. We can't predict the time. But it can cause us to look, see the history in the Bible, see the history post the Bible, look at where we are now and go, this means we need to be warning people. This is what happens to a nation that God's going to wipe off the face of the earth. And we are not the chosen people. My recommendation for books that, you know, and I think they tie a few things together. I really like Daubigny. He's a good author. He tells what's happening in such a way that it's very engaging, even to younger children. And it's, it's, it tells about what happened in the church. And what happened in the church is 
you know, the church is the keystone of history in a sense, right? All things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. He's writing history for the church. So it's really saying these are the important things that happened, especially during the Reformation when it was a major movement. And it has a lot to tell us about what we should be doing today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would I would echo that one for sure. And, and partly because he doesn't do what Joshua is just mentioning in the last point is he's willing to say, hey, do you see the hand of God right here in this particular event? Do you see how God blessed this particular person? Do you see the judge? You see that that pope died? Do you see the judgment of God? I mean, he he makes those kinds of judgments throughout his history book. It's not just a dry series of facts. He's he's doing interpretation. So he he clearly has biases, but he's trying to come at it from a you see the hand of God working out here. And I mean, his book on Cromwell in particular, when he started and his foreword to that book, he goes, I thought Cromwell was a really evil person when I went to write the book on Cromwell. And then as I was writing it, I realized that's not true. And so you also see in his own testimony of somebody that's trying to search out the truth. I can follow up. I'll go with two different sets of books. I'll, I'll start with a, a really modern um, group of books. Um, I think uh, Susan Weisbauer has some history books that are, if you're looking for a really broad, very surface level survey of history, I don't know that you're gonna find much better than her from a modern author. I mean, and her books are something like History of the Ancient World, History of the Medieval World or the Middle Ages, and History of the Renaissance. Um, and so she's a Christian author. She's a little squishy on some theistic evolution stuff if you see any of that kind of controversy, but, she does take you through and say, here's what happens. And as things happen that are, you know, when she's writing about the ancient world, for example, she will quote historical events in scripture and treat them as if they actually happened in the context of, hey, here's what's happening with the Assyrian empire. And oh, by the way, here's this thing from the Bible. And it's not an, oh, by the way, like I just represented it. It's, and this thing happened and this person did this thing. So, I mean, that's really useful. You have to be careful. I, there may be some abridged versions of those. The the unabridged ones, I mean, they're incredibly long. If you want to, I think they make really good books on tape, but they're over 20 hours for each one of those. So you have a lot of car time. Daubigny's long, too. <laughs> Daubigny's long. Um, but, but you do have to be careful. I'd recommend this probably for older kids, for high school kids. Um, you know, your mileage may vary, but you need to figure out when your kids are able to, to handle some of the really brutal aspects of what humans did to each other. And so, you know, if, if your kid's ready for stories about drinking out of the skulls of their enemies, then this, this could be really innocent. good. <laughs> so I'd, I'd go with those if you want something new. I'm going to kind of throw a curveball for something really old, and I'd recommend two books by Augustine. I recommend you read his Confessions, um, and I'm going to call that a history book because it's it's an autobiography. He's telling mm -hmm. his life story as a you know kind of a church father or pretty early church patriarch, maybe better. Um, but he's doing it as, hey, here's how God treated me in my life. And then his other book is The City of God that I'd recommend. Absolutely. And again, probably high school age just because of the, the nature of the themes. But that book, I would say, is 
I don't know how much we're willing to acknowledge it, but that book has really shaped everything that we're saying here tonight because he's the one who gave the Western world this idea about history, or or if you will, he's the one who interpreted scripture in such a way that all of the Western world is sort of downstream from that. He gave the, the Western world their, their philosophy of history because he was dealing with this argument of, you know what, Christianity is coming to the world and because of that, the pagan gods are angry and that's why the Roman Empire is falling. And his whole book is a rebuttal of that. But in doing that rebuttal, he says, no, 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 that's not what's happening. Here's what's happening is God is ruling and there's this battle that's been going on throughout history between the city of God and the city of man. And so he takes all of those things that you see in the Bible and applies them to his current day and the crisis that he's seeing at fourth century Rome. So something new, something old. I just, you know, from the city of God, what I remember is him going, you know, there's these, that they have these statues of gods that were named after virtues in the Roman Empire. He's like, of course, demons are more than happy to be called faith or to be called strength or to be called any of these things they don't care if they're called by their name they're happy to inhabit these statues so to pretend like these gods couldn't do anything is to reject the idea of demons that they're worshiping these these statues right. and these idols but the demons are actively using it and so you're seeing all these things around it and he's going this is the world and so that's that's one of the things that I remember from that book is just and it's you hear that and you go, well, that's obvious, but it's not necessarily an obvious thought until you hear it. So I'm going to reference, I'm going to recommend an author, and then not just books, but some resources as well. Um, the Genevieve Foster books are are interesting books in the sense that they're his, they'll be written, they'll mention like you know George Washington, but they're written from what was going on in the entire world at the time of George Washington or Columbus or different. So there's not a huge number of books that she's written. I wish she had actually written more, but there's four or five books. And it's nice just because in the sense of it gives you a holistic view of while George Washington was doing this in the United States, this was going on in Paris and this was going on in Russia and this was going, you know, so it gives you this holistic view of the world so that you kind of, you kind of get a better understanding of contemporaneous events that were going on. Um, and then just as resources, because I don't know if these guys will mention it or not, but uh, the two horns on the outside of the table here, the, the, the two horns, um, they, uh, if you mess with history, you get the horns. Um, so they, they have a website called discerninghistory.com, um, which is dedicated to looking at aspects of history and saying you need to discern and see what God has done. So they have a, a YouTube channel and uh, as well as just the website discerninghistory.com. And there's also, they've done a 21 volume DVD set on the the causes, the you know, different aspects of the Civil War, kind of a, a, a overview of the Civil War, looking at different different aspects of it. It's really good. You can get it with a workbook, which I know is if you're a homeschooler, somebody who's done the work to put together actual questions and different things like that, that's that's always worth its weight in gold. So there's really good both free resources there as well as some paid resources and just really useful material. Yeah, so I, I'd start with um, the series that we've been getting books from to read to our kids, which is, I think, called Landmark Books. Um, and those very... Uh, bit in quality. There's some books from there that have been really good. There's some that I wouldn't order. There's one that I ordered and uh, I'm not going to read. But I think, but if you want to start with one, the book on the landing of the pilgrims, I think it's pretty good. It's pretty, um, you know, pretty basic, um, but something that, you know, 
we'll, we'll teach you about the pilgrims. You know, they're not explicitly, they're not Christian books, um, but they are decades old, so they do have a bit of a different worldview than people have nowadays. Um, but they're just, you know, you know, not, uh, yeah, yeah, I think they're just pretty, pretty, pretty decent. A lot of them are in just, you know, telling the history of what happened, and then you can make your own interpretation from that. Which one are you not going to read? Um, the Pony Express. Okay. You, you open the book and it says, well, we don't know that much about the Pony Express, so we, we, we made up the book. <laughs> okay. I just figured like, it's well, good to, yeah, we'll just move throw on it, from that throw one. out the one that, yeah, yeah you, don't, don't buy that one. So all his principles about discernment, you apply yes. them. Right yeah, it's there. not hard. That one they tell you. You know, because I, I think they do, you know, they're by a bunch of different authors. They're all the same size. They're not all the same length because the font size varies greatly. Um, <laughs> but Landing in the Pilgrims is one of the shorter ones. Um, and so if you want to start with one, that might be a good one. I want to give an anti-recommendation too, which is textbooks tend to be really lousy because what you want to do to have history that's engaging is you want the author to be engaged in the subject. Textbooks are usually written because they have to cover a certain section of history. And so textbooks are not written by people who are interested in their history. They're written by people who are trying to fulfill a job that they've been given. Textbooks, typically, you should just stay away from them because they're not interested in the history. They're just interested in you know, getting in the niche and getting it again to the schools and things. What you want to do is find people that are interested in the subject that they're writing about. If you want your child to be interested in it, if the author's not interested in it, almost certainly the child won't be, which is when the history is taught in public schools, almost nobody cares about it. Almost nobody finds it interesting because they're using textbooks where the author didn't really care either. And let's be honest, textbooks are a lure because they come with supporting, because they come with tests and other information. And they cover this period. So you know that you're covering this period. So it's better to teach your children to understand certain periods and how to tie them together somewhat than to try to have a comprehensive covering of a certain period of history, which is what the history textbooks are trying to do, where they won't remember any of it because it's written in a way where the author didn't care. They're just trying to get the information down so that they can check it off so that it meets the, the standard for the, the, you know, whatever the state requirements are, and they aren't actually trying to go, this is really something that fascinates me, so I'm going to write it. I agree with you 100%. If there's any children listening who have been told to read the textbook, okay, honor your, your parents, parents. <laughs> read the textbook. And if you want to disregard the advice and go buy a history textbook, I know Kevin Swanson has a series of, of history textbooks. I have not read them. I flipped through them, and they look decent. So... If you want to disregard the advice, you know, head, head in that direction, check that out. So some other books um, recommended for, you know, older children. Um, I think there's, there's uh, some good books by a historian named David Hacklett Fisher. Um, he has uh, Paul Revere's Ride, Washington's Crossing. Again, not a Christian, um, but he, but what I like about him is, I mean, he's a, he's a good writer, um, but he also really shows you um, kind of the process of how he's getting this material. Um, he, you know, th- there's a place for a well-crafted story. Um, he has a, a bit of a well-crafted story, but he's also, you know, showing you his research process. So you can understand, um, under- understand the, the background and, and how you get, how you understand what actually happened in the past. Um, you know, if you want more advanced books, you know, he has Albion Seed, um, and then he has a book called Historian's Fallacies, which if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, 
how historians lie to you. I mean, that 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 reveals a lot of stuff that that, that you see after you read the book. You, you see that in a lot of other places. And when I was talking before about how Paul Revere was looked at differently in different times, that that was from the end of Paul Revere's ride. Yeah. That's an appendix in that book. I've read a couple books by Otto Scott that I thought were pretty good, um, pretty pretty well written, um, not not short reads, but <laughs> they they were pretty decent. And uh, an incredibly broad recommendation uh, that, I, f- f- that I don't think has been said yet, which is just primary sources in general. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a big place for historians to come in and give a broader overview or dig into the nitty gritty. Um, but there's also a place where you need, it's just better to read what the people involved wrote. You know, if you really want to study the Civil War, you need to read what the Southerners said, what the Northerners said, what the slaves said. I mean, you don't understand the Civil War unless you're reading those things. Because, um, you know, they all, I'm sure all of them lied at certain times, and historians run with the lies that they like. Um, if you read them all, then you can decide for yourself. And, and that's, that's really, uh, re- really valuable if you want to really get into, into history. And a lot of these things, you know, when you look at something like the Civil War, there wasn't two sides there was hundreds of different sides because they are that complicated and so it's really easy for people to choose and say well it was about slavery well to some people undoubtedly it was and to some other people it wasn't and so you don't really understand the complexity of the whole thing until you start to read and say what did various people say what were they saying at the conventions what were they saying when they were arguing these things because in a given convention when south carolina decided to secede Different people are voting for it for different reasons. Thank you for joining us. I, I hope through this discussion you've seen the importance of, of remembering what God has done because that is God is writing a story for us to read so, so we know our God better. It's not just about us and not just about the things that we do, but actually so that we can know our God better so that we can glorify him and worship him and praise him and be filled with thanksgiving towards him. History is an important element of that. Knowing who he is is an important element, too. But so is knowing what he did. So, so we should remember that so that we can praise him the way that we ought to. Thank you for joining us. This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.